Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome back everyone. Today I have the honor of interviewing a mother, midwife, podcast host, award-winning blog writer, author and academic Dr. Rachel Reed. On today's episode we discuss the link between labeling pregnant women and interventions, the true risks associated with meconium stained waters, how to better manage a diagnosis of gestational diabetes and so much more. Rachel also shares her own birth experiences and gives us an insight into the creation of her most recent book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage. This is a fantastic episode, jam-packed full of some really profound information that I know you guys are going to love. Enjoy. Dr. Rachel Reed, thank you so much for being here today. This is such an honor for me to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I guess where I would love to start off today is to just hear a little bit about your own journey on how you became a birth advocate and author. Okay, I'll try and keep this kind of a good summary <laughs> rather than tell you my entire life story. Um, so I guess I came into midwifery, into a midwifery degree already as a mother. So my own birth experiences influenced that um, which is sometimes a good thing sometimes not a good thing so I kind of went in like a lot of women do kind of wanting all women to have an amazing birth experience like I had with my second birth Mm -hmm. and hadn't with my first birth and I guess my my background had been not really in sciences I was very much sociology was kind of my interest so that's what I came into midwifery with and women's rights and feminism yeah etc um so that's how I got into it. And I did a Bachelor of Honours, a Bachelor of Midwifery with an honour. So there was a bit of research in there that I had to do. I didn't have a choice. I wouldn't have done it if, <laughs> if I had a choice because I just wanted to be a midwife. I didn't want to do studying or research. Um, and I'd actually left school with no qualifications and pregnant. So yeah. I'd had to do a bit of studying in terms of I did some sociology studying and and then I was doing this degree and realized that I actually 
wasn't really stupid and I could actually <laughs> write academically and I could and I could ask the questions and find try and find the answers um, and that's really where it all started is is looking at what was going on asking the questions then looking at trying to find the answers and then putting the whole thing together and really wanting to advocate for women in maternity services both as a practitioner and just kind of on a on a structural level because you know there's a lot that needs to change and then from there I obviously was a midwife in various different um, hospital-based community-based came over to Australia um, worked in the system for a bit and then stepped out and was a private practice midwife for seven eight years um, while doing my PhD and being an academic and that's kind of where I am now and I guess my people mostly know me from midwife thinking where I kind of put all of those thoughts and the questions and the research into what I hope is more easily digestible than a journal article mm. um so yeah that's in a nutshell where I've come from and where I am and also a podcast oh yes so <laughs> Katie who I actually trained with in the UK all those years years back 20 odd years back and um, approached me and said hey do you want to do a podcast and my answer was well only if I just turn up and speak because I'm, <laughs> I'm not getting into the technical side of it or the social media side of it yeah. so we started the midwives cauldron and really didn't you know we just decided to kind of record ourselves having our usual chats and it's just grown so yeah I do have a podcast just to add to the list <laughs> yeah so would you be able to give us a brief description on your latest book reclaiming childbirth as a rite of passage and what was the inspiration behind it uh, okay so this was the book that I did say I wouldn't write because <laughs> because it's based on my PhD so while being a private practice midwife and a lecturer and all other things, and I, I was doing my PhD, and that really was a big deep dive into, not, you know, not just the physiology of birth, but anthropology, you know, the social political bits. And and my PhD ended up being about ritual theory, which was really about practices, what what it is that people do around the woman who's birthing and how that influences the woman's experience of birth. So that in a nutshell was was my PhD. And then I kind of, people said, oh, you're going to write a book? Because people were actually reading the thesis, which is a bit weird. <laughs> I don't know why anybody would read a research thesis. And I was like, no, I can't, I'm not going back there. Um, but actually I needed to go back there because it underpins everything that I do. Mm. So it's it's the book that really takes underpins everything it's it's the her story you know how what birth childbirth culture was and how it evolved and what happened to it mm-hmm. what's happening now and why it's happening you know because we can't understand that without understanding the roots and then really trying to reframe birth or reclaim it as a rite of passage which is you know looking at it holistically not just about physiology there's a lot of physiology in the book and how the body works mm-hmm. but also the social emotional psycho um all of those aspects that are often missed and really importantly how care providers and those around the woman can influence that for 
you know, better or worse. Mm. So that is the book in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell, it's a great read, and it's available for purchase on the PBA website for any of my listeners that are keen to get their hands on that. I would love to jump on over now to your blog, Midwife Thinking, where you share some really great information on a whole range of topics. But I guess I'd love to start off by chatting more about meconium stained waters, which is something that. I personally experienced during the birth of my twins, my son Luca had meconium in his waters. So could you please explain to us what the real risks are when it comes to this type of thing unfolding in your birth? Yeah, so this is, again, another kind of outcome from the way the birth culture has evolved, which is very much around just applying general risks to individuals and kind of the whole flow chart way of looking at things as in oh there's meconium therefore we do these things because there may be a risk um so meconium is just the baby opening their bowels before they're born and it's the important thing is why that happened as to what the impact is and what the risks are Mm -hmm. so you really need to put it into a context of why did this baby have a poo? Yeah, And, you know, a lot of babies just do it because their bowels are mature and they're ready to, and they've pooed in there maybe a few days ago and it's just floating around in there. And that's not a sign of distress. That's actually a sign of a the baby's, you know, maturing bowels. So that's a very different scenario to a baby who's, say, 36 weeks, who's in labor and everything has been fine and then we've got abnormal heart rate and then there's meconium that's a very different scenario because that could be meconium because the baby's distressed mm-hmm. so it's about looking at the bigger picture most of the time it's because the baby's just pooed and it's not because the baby's stressed but what's happened in our culture we've put the two things together so we go oh meconium that means there could be stress, which there could be, but there's probably not if it's a you know mature baby that's doing fairly well in labour. Um, and the, you know the the risk, I guess, that everybody's really worried about is that the baby inhales the meconium, mm. breathes it in, um, which has been linked to. So this is all very controversial because it's been linked to meconium aspirate syndrome, which is a syndrome that may or may not exist because it's a group of symptoms that babies also have when they haven't inhaled meconium or when there wasn't meconium. Okay. So what we've done is we've put the two together and said, there's a baby who had an abnormal heart rate and had meconium and is now having problems respiratory wise. They have meconium aspirate syndrome versus a baby who didn't have meconium who's having respiratory problems. They just have respiratory distress. So we've kind of got into this labeling thing, which there isn't a huge amount of evidence for. And most babies who've passed meconium are not stressed and do not have respiratory problems. And most babies who do have respiratory problems have not passed meconium. Interesting. So, (laughs) yeah, it kind of does your head in a bit. (laughs) trying to get your head around these concepts because you say in your blog post as well that some of the steps that they take to try and avoid aspiration could actually be the very thing that causes it yeah so if if we think that inhaling meconium is a really dangerous thing which it may be you know um 
there is meconium masperate syndrome, whether or not it's to do with that. Let's just say it is, okay? So we've got meconium aspirate syndrome, which means that the baby's inhaled meconium into their lungs. That's quite difficult to do. And if it happens, it happens in the uterus when nobody can do anything about it. And it would need, if we look at the kind of pathophysiology of asphyxia in the uterus, babies are really resilient and they have all these coping mechanisms. So when I teach this, we've kind of got a, a chart, like a flow chart of this this happens and then we move down into this phase and if that doesn't get sorted out then we move down into this phase and it's not until we've kind of gone through not just a you know a reduction of oxygen but then a reduction of oxygen in the tissues then a you know we've got this whole thing that happens before we get to the brain actually shutting off that's the last thing that happens is that the baby doesn't have enough oxygen to keep their brain functioning and then what happens is the limbic system which is kind of that primitive part of the brain that's that's the only part that's getting good oxygenation and that initiates the baby to do a big gasp to try and get some air in Mm -hmm. so (gasps) there's this huge gasp um and you see this on babies that are born who are very high hypoxic Um, as part of the resus but it's really rare like I've seen a handful of times you know I've been to lots of births including high-risk births where you would expect a baby to come out needing help so the baby would need to do that in the uterus and inhale the meconium into their lungs and you know that's a significant you would have seen changes the mother probably would have you know mothers are often if they're birthing physiologically really well connected to the baby and will be the first person to say, I don't feel like something's right here. Mm-hmm. But if you're listening to the baby's heart rate, you would see, and I don't mean a CTG monitor, I mean just listening in every now and then, you would see heart rate changes a long way before you saw the baby inhale meconium. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. While we're on the topic of labels, I would love to chat about the label of having a big baby. Yeah. <laughs> So often you hear the story that a pregnant woman has been told your baby is measuring too big or even too small and that, you know, they may need X, Y, and Z because of this. Could you give us some insight into this topic and why such a label can have a profound impact on mother's pregnancy and or birth? Hmm. Yeah, so it just seems that we're quite good at using more and more technology to identify more and more things that we then Hmm. do things about that cause complications yeah. and cause worry for women. You know, the amount of cortisol that we create through all this testing and finding things that don't necessarily mean anything, but then the things we do with it do mean something. And big babies is one of those. So firstly, you can't you can't tell if a baby's big until it's out um, and you weigh it. Mm. that's how how you can estimate the size of a baby yeah because that's another thing that you often hear as well is that babies will be labeled large and then the mother gives birth and you know the baby's completely normal size or even smaller Mm. yeah because you can't act the scan can't tell you if the baby's big so you know that's one thing that women need to really know is that it's a huge error margin in terms of guessing the size of a baby um and you can, you know, even on palpation, like I can't tell the size of a baby. I can have a guess, but I'm often wrong. <laughs> and you know, just, you know, think, oh, that feels like a good sized baby, and it's like not, or a, yeah. or this huge baby comes out that nobody was expecting. <laughs> um, so you, so you can't estimate the size of a baby. But once you've labelled the woman with that big baby, um, you've generated a lot of fear often, yeah. and then you've 
you've changed the way that that woman feels about her birth. You've changed the way that people interact with the woman. Um, and, you know, the, what the research tells us is that it's not necessarily the size of the baby. It's the care provider's perception of the size of the baby that increases the complications that are associated with big babies. Right. So the, the kind of risks that are associated with a big baby is perineal tearing and shoulder dystocian. Those two things, which would kind of make sense if you've got a bigger baby, then you've got more chance that they might get stuck on the way out or that, you know, you might tear. But if those things are there probably because of what we do to women when we think they have a big baby. Mm. So when somebody's when the care provider is anticipating a big baby, they will change their practice and the woman will feel different. And the research that looks at women who had um, unexpected big babies, so these were women who didn't have a label but had a big baby, versus women who didn't have a big baby but had the label big baby, the women who had the label were the ones who had the complications, not the women who popped out a big baby with nobody knowing about it. So there's something about the way that we interact with women and mess up their births when we're scared about tipping a big baby. And it's probably around, you know, I've looked after women who have been predicted to have big babies and I have been told that they must birth on the bed so that we can manage the shoulder dystocia. You know, it's absolute bullshit. Mm. You know, the woman I'm thinking about actually birthed in the toilet because that worked best for her and it wasn't a big baby. So, you know, this is when when you have the label of big baby, people are more likely to intervene, which then can increase the risk, you know birthing on your back increases the risk of a shoulder dystocia and tearing for example Mm. what would you say to the mothers that have had that label applied to them like how would you suggest they navigate the system in the hopes of avoiding unnecessary interventions your care providers are going to think your baby's big so they're going to want a certain set of things to happen so you need to know what those things are and this is where you know in my in my recent book I talk about the importance of care providers sharing the map which is being honest with women about the place they're going to birth in what the normal processes and protocols are what the care providers are like so that they can actually navigate that mm-hmm. so i would be having a conversation around supporting birth physiology because if the baby's big which it may or may not be because the label is probably not correct then what's the best way to physiologically birth a big baby well it's to be undisturbed you know mm. to, to be able to move around to connect with your instinct to make different you know shifts in your body to birth your baby that will come instinctively if nobody's directing you or mm. messing about and telling you to get on a bed. Mm. Makes so much sense to just tune into your body. Mm. Jumping over to placentas now, I would love to chat about what a safe placenta birth requires and what are the actual risks with postpartum hemorrhage? Well, that depends on how you birth your baby. Okay. So you've got, you know, childbirth. So in my book, I actually write extensively about physiology and promotion and support of physiology Mm -hmm. um and you know why certain things support and promote physiology and why certain things don't so if you're having a physiological birth and by that i mean not no medical intervention no care provider direction you know there can be presence but not them telling you positions and telling you what you should be doing Um, and you physiologically birth your baby then the research shows that the and I don't like the word safe because nothing's safe mm-hmm. but um re- to reduce your chance of having a hemorrhage then it 
birthing the placenta physiologically will reduce your chance of having a hemorrhage. So for the women who birth their baby physiologically without medical intervention and are in a setting that promotes and supports physiology, so that's not people putting on lights and startling the woman and reducing her oxytocin after the baby's born and taking the baby away and all those things that can happen. Mm -hmm. So if the woman births a baby and the baby's on her and they're working together to birth the placenta and it's you know, physiology, then if you inject her with synthetic oxytocin to speed up getting the placenta right, you actually increase her chance of having a hemorrhage. Right. Whereas it's the reverse if the woman has had any medical intervention. So if the woman has had any disruption of her physiology, um, and it could be as simple as she's had a physiological birth and then somebody's removed her baby for whatever reason, you know, um, to resus or to weigh or to do whatever, her oxytocin levels are now going to drop and she hasn't got, the, the baby is actually part of birthing the placenta. The baby, it's, the, it's attached to the baby mm. for a good reason so that the mother and baby or together birthing the placenta and the you know the baby's feet kick the uterus to make it contract the baby's interactions release oxytocin so if you disrupt that then it might be a good idea to then give some artificial oxytocin because the baby's not working with the mum to create yeah. the maternal oxytocin so fascinating so again it's like it's looking at what's happening for this woman and baby in this in this scenario can I ask why in a hospital setting they don't put into practice giving everyone an individual assessment rather than putting, you know, everyone under the same scope of risk, mm. especially when there's so much research out there that supports undisturbed birth? Well, because it's easier if you think. So maternity care is um, not set up for individual women. It's yeah. not woman-centered. It's centered around efficient organizations and yeah. getting women through a process efficiently and it's general so looking at a general population and you've got care providers in the hospital setting for example who are very junior to very experienced so what the system does is create flowcharts and guides and rules that anybody can follow so you know junior doctor can walk in and this is the way we do it here follow this we'll be we'll be fine um, so that's kind of how they're set up they're not set up to meet the individual needs of this particular woman and baby in her scenario because it's a big institution and it was never set up to meet women's needs and you know the structures are not set up to do that yeah. unfortunately yeah that's a great explanation thank you speaking now about your own birth experiences what were the contrasts between your two births and what did you learn from those experiences uh, well, probably like a lot of women. So the first birth, I just assumed I'd give birth naturally and because, <laughs> because my mother had and like there was no, you know, the stories of birth in my family weren't, and my mother just went in and had a baby. So I just thought, well, that's what you do. You just have a baby. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the stories around birth weren't, oh, your body doesn't work and it's, you know, that wasn't my story. I know that is a lot of women's stories. You know, my story was very matter of fact, your body works. And, you know, when I started my periods, it was like, okay, so you started your periods. This is, this is what's happening <laughs> in your body. This is how you manage it. It was very kind of pragmatic. <laughs> so when I had my first baby, I just assumed, well, I'll just, well, I'll just have a baby. You know, that's what, that's what women do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was only 18. I was probably, you know, also at that naive kind of 18-year-old, you can't tell me what to do. Oh, yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I probably haven't, haven't grown out of that. 
Um, yeah, so I went into hospital with my um, boyfriend then. He's actually my husband now. Yeah, as my main support person. So, you know, that's probably not going to go well, is it, an 18-year-old yes. boy as your <laughs> main oh, support dear. person? Um, and into, you know, into the hospital. And, you know, long story short, it was just a classic, um, you know, having things done that I hadn't consented to, messing things up, um, ended up pushing a baby out of my vagina before the doctor came in with the and did it because the trolleys were coming in. So there's the threat of, I had an epidural, I had syntocin on, which looking back, I, you know, I got to transition mm. without that. I, you know, it's easy with hindsight to look back and go, perhaps if I'd had a bit of support when I was going through transition, then I maybe, instead of just being told I can't have an epidural because it's too late. So it was just the the same old scenario, you know, that your, your body's trying to birth a baby and all this stuff's going on around you. And I actually managed to get the baby out, which I'm pretty surprised at. And he was stressed and passed meconium because the syntocinon that they had going, I actually used my syntocinon trace in teaching um, to show over, over contraction. Mm-hmm. I was having about seven to eight contractions in a minute. <gasps> so there was no rest. There was no rest for him um but he was a healthy full-term baby so he he actually managed to come out a little bit of resus he was fine and you know i was just grateful because i'd got a baby out and you focus on mothering and you don't really think about anything until you're pregnant again um so then i was 22 and was actually booked in at the hospital and was just really reflecting and thinking about how i wanted it to be this time compared to how it was and it wasn't traumatic birth um they took him away afterwards, which was, I guess, traumatic to an extent, trying to find your baby in a hospital. Um, but the actual birth wasn't. Um, and I just realized, oh, I also read Sheila Kitzinger for preparation for this birth, as opposed to, oh, God, what, what's the name? Stoppard for my first birth, which was a bit like the what to do when you're expecting. Now, what's that crap? What book? to expect when you're expecting. What to expect when you're expecting. Yeah. Right. So it was similar to that, the first the first book that I read to prepare for my first birth and then went in and had this birth and then the next time thought, oh, I actually want things a bit different. So just read some Sheila Kitzinger stuff and then just halfway through my pregnancy realized that I couldn't have the birth that I wanted in the hospital environment because I knew I would just give in, ask for an epidural, would not, I just needed to be by myself and do it myself, not have other people messing it up. Yeah. So I was in England and it's, you know, the National Health Service provide home birth free. They certainly did. Um, So I had two midwives, community midwives who were my midwives, but not necessarily going to be the ones at the birth. They did happen to be the ones that were on call. So a a UK NHS home birth is very different to what I was doing as a private practice midwife. Um, it's, It's not as reliant on your relationship with the midwife, which is for me, that's fine. I just wanted to, I knew I could give birth. I just needed people to not mess with it. Mm. I didn't need to have somebody I had a deep relationship with there. I didn't need any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had my second baby, pretty normal, boring, straightforward (laughs) home birth on the NHS. And the midwives tidied up afterwards and went. Um, But it was actually the the physiological feeling that sparked my 
I'd kind of wanted to be a midwife a bit before that. I'd been looking into it, but that was just the yes. I want all women to feel like this after they've given birth. And it was a physical, and you know, I now know that that was, I've written about it in my book, what all the, you know, the hormones and that enchantment phase where you just euphoric and, and just think you are awesome and that you can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that feeling of huge empowerment and was, it was like a physical feeling. It was very different to my first birth. And my first birth, you know, I loved my baby and I was really happy to have him and etc but it, it wasn't a physiological surge of empowerment and then euphoria and and that, that was just it was actually a little bit unsettling at the time and I thought wow that's like what happened there mm. and I want every woman to think that she is the most amazing woman on the earth <laughs> and that <laughs> that she can do anything you know when she's given birth to her baby regardless of how she does it that's and that was my mission I guess going into being a midwife and in the work that I do is I want all women to know their power and I think the birth experience is one of those times when you can really feel and know your power regardless of how you birth you know physiology physiological birth helps because it gives you the hormones and you know it augments that transformation um but yeah, that's, so that was my two births and my kind of realization that I wanted. And then, of course, I got all, all evangelical, like a lot of midwives and doulas do, and went into midwifery. I'm going to save all the women and <laughs> show them all how the how to do it the right way. And yeah, soon realized that that was <laughs> not, not helpful. <laughs> Did you face any challenges going back into the hospital setting after experiencing that way of birthing? Well, it was, you know, I was seeing very different things happening Mm -hmm. but you know at that time we're talking 20 years ago even though it was a big regional referral unit vaginal births were pretty normal it was still happening so you know yes you'd go on shift and I'd you know maybe look after a woman who was having an induction but inductions were very there was very rigid, rigid protocols. So the women who were having inductions either did have a medical need or they were 40, they were getting onto 43 weeks. Right. Okay. They weren't allowed, we weren't allowed to induce women until they were 40, um, 42 weeks. So I actually saw a lot of physiological births. You know, when I look back, they were pretty medicalized in that, you know, actively managing the birth of the placenta and, but they were quite low key and there's only one midwife in the room. So you could have a really nice, you know, create this really nice environment and just support the woman and nobody was messing with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a bit of a, wow, why are we doing these things? But at the same time, we weren't doing as many things yes. <laughs> as we are now. <laughs> and why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I think we're just getting absolutely bonkers around risk and how we you know, everything is focused on these teeny tiny chances of things happening Mm. and completely ignoring how the interventions that we do impact in all these other ways, all these much more likely things to happen. We're just, it's it's risk management, I guess, which is why this, the hospitals um, are just increasingly increasing intervention because and also as a society, we don't we don't um, accept 
any death or any yeah. bad outcomes. You know, there's an expectation which is very new. You know, our ancestors did not expect when they were pregnant that at the end of that pregnancy they would have a live baby and that they would be alive. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was not not an expectation. Whereas it is now, and I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. There is this expectation of nothing. And it's not just maternity you see everywhere. You know, kids can't climb trees in case they fall out and break their arm. But nobody's then thinking about all the other beneficial things of learning how to climb trees and mm. <laughs> and physical activity. And we're doing that with birth. It's like, you know, we can't. Which is interesting because if we take placentas for an example, if a woman is birthing in a hospital setting, then everything is there if she has a hemorrhage. Yeah. You know, pretty much it pretty much is at home as well. We can do pretty much everything apart from go to theatre, which, you know, you very rarely do. So we've actually got, you know, medicine can now in get in there and save mothers and babies. The problem is they're in there when the mothers and babies don't need saving. Yeah. And you would think that now that we have that kind of, you can press a button and, or you can transfer to hospital and have, be rescued, I guess, by medicine. Now that we have that, why are we not then going, okay, so we've got that set up so we can relax a little bit now about mm. physiology because if things don't work, we've got a plan B. But instead we're going, no, we'll just mess with the physiology so that we'll end up needing mm. the rescuing. Total blame madness. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Wild times. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to gestational diabetes, which is another label that women get slapped with today, um, immediately putting them in, you know, this high risk category that we've been chatting about. I've also recently been told that they've moved the level. So as an outcome of that, more women are getting this diagnosis. Is that true? And what are your thoughts on this topic? Yesterday, um, I think it was 2014, 2015, they moved the levels down so you now have to have a lower blood sugar level before you're diagnosed so the diagnostic level shifted downwards um which has seen a massive increase in women you know now this is probably the correct thing will be on my blog but i think it's about 17 percent of women now mm. are diagnosed as gestational diabetic and then treated as if they are mm. because these this threshold's been lowered and there's actually been research looking at what the impact of that was in Australia um, in one health district and what they found was by lowering the the level to the now new standard level they increased intervention increased costs and didn't improve outcomes at all gosh why do they do things like this that make absolutely no sense well it comes down to that teeny tiny risk yeah yeah and and you know the underlying thing which is you know what i write about in my book in the her story is this all comes out of mistrust of women's bodies Mm. and that is goes way back in religion state his you know history is this idea that women's bodies are somehow malfunctioning versions of male bodies that don't work very efficiently and that all this technology can actually improve how our bodies function. Mm. And that's the underlying, I guess, thing that everything else is built on is then we build the technologies to make women's bodies more efficient and more effective. And and we then set parameters for what is efficiency, which are all completely incorrect, you know, like... Mm-hmm. The, how many hours you can be in labor and how, all that stuff just gets built onto this idea that women's bodies don't work. Yeah. And it's the same with gestational diabetes. You know, they've decided that, that because at a certain, this is all based on research that looked at um, 
the size of babies along with the amount of sugar in women's blood. Mm -hmm. And what they found was, surprise, surprise, that, you know, there's a, a sliding scale. So the more sugar you have circulating in your blood, then the bigger your baby is. And, you know, there is such a thing as gestational diabetes, which is very high levels of blood glucose that alter the physiology of the baby. So the baby actually grows differently. And it's not like a, you know, normal genetically big baby. It's a big, it's got all this fat at the top end, <laughs> look like little rugby players. <laughs> um, so they do, they are more likely to get stuck because they've got all this fat on their shoulders. Mm. Um, so because there's a slide, sliding scale, they just decided to cut off at the level where I think they decided one point, oh, I can't remember, I've written about, I've written about it on my blog and yeah. I can't rem <laughs> remember numbers. I hated doing that blog post because I hate gestational <laughs> diabetes. I just can't get my head around it. Um, so basically, they just picked a cut off. I mean, we're, gonna, we're just going to cut it off here because that's when babies start to get bigger. And that's the risk. Yeah, the real risk is that because there's so much circulating blood glucose from the mother going through to the baby, that the baby ramps up their insulin supply. So they... You know, so then there's this high level of insulin in the baby, which grabs all of that sugar and turns it into fat um, and also increases red blood cells in the baby. So it's really the baby's response to lots of glucose. Mm. And to find out if you have GD, they tell you that you have to do a glucose test between, I think it's 24 and 28 weeks, which I've never personally done because it never felt necessary. So I declined during both of my pregnancies. What are your thoughts on this? And do you think every woman should be taking this test like they insist on? It's up to women, but women need to understand that if you're going to do a test, I think a lot of the time women do tests just assuming it's all going to be fine and they'll get a reassurance mm. when the whole point of tests is to find the one, the women who don't meet the criteria and then intervene. So it's like, do you want the label? Because once you've got the label, you're now heading off down a completely different track where yeah. you have this thing that your care providers are then wanting to do things to you. Um, whereas, when I worked in the UK that we didn't routinely test so you would only test a woman for gestational diabetes if she had risk factors you know she had diabetes in her family or there was a whole range of risk factors that you'd offer the test to her mm -hmm. here in Australia and you know probably now in the UK as well it's just offered to every woman mm. now it is an offer you know a lot of women that I cared for didn't have that test and that's fine because you know, that's up to them. And if you think about it, what is it that, what would you do if you do have, do have high blood glucose levels? Well, you would just, you know, eat well. So I would, mm. it would be nice for us to focus maternity care on helping women, you know, be really healthy yeah. because, they, because then all the other things would fall away. You know, if women are really healthy in, you know, feeling good mentally and physically, then a lot of these risks and you know, disorders wouldn't happen. Mm. There's also, I feel, a stigma attached to the women rejecting or declining to do any of the routine testing within the system. You know, they can unfairly be labelled as irresponsible or careless because of their choices. Mm. Well, you're being dangerous and you're not caring about the baby and, and you know, the baby's, you know, of course, the mother doesn't care about the baby. <laughs> 
It's just, yeah, I mean, it's the same with ultrasound. You know, women who decline ultrasound, good grief, like the amount of drama that happens around that. And, it's, yeah. you know, this, these are tests that are offered and it should always be an offer. And it's up to the woman to pick and choose the tests or not have any. It's up to her because it's actually her body and her baby. And she's the person who lives with the consequences either way of having a test that is then positive that leads her in a totally different direction or of not having a test and having a big baby, for example. Mm. And I I did look after a woman who didn't want gestational diabetic test and had this massive (gasps) gestational diabetic baby at home. And as soon as this baby's head came out, I went, oh, okay, that's gestational. (laughs) That's, That's the real deal. Because um, this baby was just huge. Well, you know, this huge baby's head came out and then the shoulders didn't come out. And I'm kind of right at the other side of the room thinking, ah, uh, okay, that's a very, very, very big baby that looks like it's got gestational diabetes. Because there's a, they have this kind of red look because they've got more red blood cells. And this, you know, he just had this big crease in his forehead because he was such a chubber. Mm. And I'm like, all right. And then I'm actually hit slowly walking towards her thinking I'm going to have to do something and put my cape on and earn my money um <laughs> but but she had it she just moved her leg flicked her hips and this massive baby flew out into her partner's arms wow um and he was fine and you know she she I said to her you know before I left look you know pretty sure that baby has gestational diabetes massive um and he looks like the classic shape and she said yeah um so, you know, and then we just talked about, well, what do you what do you need to do? And what she needed to do was make sure that his blood sugars were maintained. And the way she did that was, you know, keep giving him colostrum and keep him, you know, while he made that adaption from having lots of insulin because she had high blood glucose to now not having lots of blood glucose, but having high insulin. So often they can then have a, you know, their blood sugars can dip dramatically. So she just managed that, you know, she kept giving him colostrum, kept an eye on him. And all was fine. So, you know, Incredible. It, do, it does happen without, you know, and women don't get tested. Sometimes we miss things. But really, what would have what would have happened if we picked that up? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. What a beautiful outcome. My final question for you today, Rachel, is what advice would you give to any expectant mothers out there that are wanting a physiological birth? Yeah. So you can give birth physiologically you you've grown that it's really interesting isn't it because women question i mean some women do question conception because for some women it's difficult and they need technology to get pregnant which is a whole other you know a whole other journey for women and a whole other you know there's this i actually did some research on that years ago there's a whole other um rite of passage that happens when when you've had to be assisted to get pregnant mm-hmm. but for most women that's not the case and you've got pregnant you're growing a baby you're not having to do any educational learning or using special skills to do any of that. <laughs> and, you know, your body will then birth the baby. That is the blueprint. That's the evolutionary blueprint. If you do nothing, a baby will come out of your body. Mm. <laughs> and the chances are it will be physiology, not pathology, because pathology is complications and things going wrong. That's pretty rare if we just let everything run its course. Yes, some women will. I think... You know, we're looking at World Health Organization is looking at saying cesarean section rates are about 15 percent. So if we say maybe 20 percent of women will need some 20, even say 30 percent of women will need some assistance, perhaps or want some, then we've still got most women. A baby will just come out of your vagina physiologically if you just Mm -hmm. (laughs) let it happen. But 
because we're humans and we've got this big neocortex, we can anticipate the birth and we plan around the birth and we think about the birth. And, you know, it's in, it's often in that, that we can set it on a path that's going to be difficult to be physiology. So I would say just, you know, do it. And in my book, I write about this, which is in the preparation phase. And it's about women working out what it is that they need as an individual to build self-trust. And that's not self-trust necessarily in your body working. I think a lot of women don't trust that because we're socialized to not trust that. But to really trust that you are the expert on yourself and your baby and your body. You're the expert in what it is that you need to know to make decisions and whatever you need to build that self-trust, do it. And for some women, it's nothing. For other women, it's, you know, going to a class, learning particular techniques, learning, you know, how their body works. For other women, it's doing yoga. For There's a whole, and that's individuals. You, you, women often say, how can I prepare for birth? You know how you need to prepare for birth mm. in terms of physiology and, you know, knowing what it is and connecting. It's, it's about building self-trust in your instinct and your ability to know when you need help and how to ask for help if you do need it. Mm-hmm. But so that's a. But you also need to know about where you're birthing. If you're not birthing at home, where are you planning to have this baby? Yeah. Who's going to be with you? What is the usual? What's the map of this place? What does this hospital usually do? Does it do routine CTGs? Because it's only by knowing that can you then plan to navigate through the system that's been built for general populations and efficiency, this is where as an individual, you need to decide which, how you're going to navigate through. Mm -hmm. And that's why care providers need to be really honest with women about in this hospital, these are the things that are the norm. So if you don't want to have those things, then let's get that written down and make sure that doesn't happen for you. Yeah. Because where you birth affects how you birth, right? Oh, completely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about, you know, if we think about the, there's a lot of stuff going on about um, the nervous system. I've got an um, honor student who's, who are having very interesting conversations because she's heading down polyvagal theory and how that relates to women's birth experiences, but also the impact of the people in the room on women's nervous systems and how that influences physiology. So it's getting all very interesting. Um, But, you know, in order to birth, it works best. You know, women, women amaze me. And when people tell me the statistics or when I read them for women getting babies out of their vagina without interventions in Australia, it's around about 20% of women having their first babies will get the baby out of their vagina without instruments or surgery Mm. or medical intervention, which people go, my God, that's terrible. That's really low. Mm. It is. It's horrendous. But when you think about physiology and what happens, I am amazed that any women do it. So our bodies are amazing. But if we're going to give the optimal kind of environment for physiology, then it's about, um, creating a sense of safety so the nervous system can relax and the woman can go inward and she's not having to worry about is there someone coming in the room what you know and sometimes it's not on a cognitive level it's on that kind of social nervous system level of you know how you just sometimes feel uneasy but you there's no logical reason for you to it's just your body so i think there's a lot of work to be done you know when women are not in their home setting where you know with people that they're used to we are the only animals that 
birth in a setting that's not familiar to us with people who are not familiar to us. We're the only mammals that do that. That's mind-blowing. Rachel, I wish we had more time to chat, but we've been able to cram in so much helpful information on a variety of topics. So thank you so much for giving me this honor of interviewing you today. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely chatting. That's it from us today, guys. I hope you learned as much as I felt I did today. Some really mind-blowing information in there for you to use. I would have loved to have dived deeper into some of the topics we mentioned today, but I really wanted to touch on as much as we could with the time that we had. But all of these topics are available in much deeper explanation for you over on Rachel's blog, Midwife Thinking. I highly recommend you guys check that out and even print out anything that you think could be useful for you. You can also get your hands on a copy of her incredible book over on the PVA website that is full to the brim with all the information you will need to birth that baby of yours in power. I really hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Let me know what you think over on the PVA Instagram and I'll see you guys next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia. Bye.